The Shame of Shamers, from the sermon series, The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Peter on. There is nothing more, I think, that we struggle with in life than shame. Uh, you know, sometimes I do meet some people and they say, I, I don't struggle with shame. And I, I actually will tell them, actually, I think you struggle with it a lot more than you actually know. And here's the thing about shame. We feel it before we can actually identify it. That's the problem. That's why some of us, we don't even know we struggle with shame, but we do. We feel it even before we can identify it. Shame is like the mother of all sins uh, or all negative emotions that we go through. It's really the, uh, the mother of all sins where it birds like the emotions of anger, uh, fear, bitterness, um, loneliness, different types of emotions like that. Many of us often get hung up, but hung up on shame is oftentimes the root cause of those things in our life. And here's what happens. When we struggle with shame, or when we continue to live in shame, do you know what we typically do? We shame other people. That's the natural thing that happens. That as we are living in shame, we naturally begin to shame other people, right? And uh, it's a really scary, sort of a vicious process that happens. The best way I could describe it is like, if you see like a steam engine, or something that needs to steam in order for it to, 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 to sort of release some of its pressure, the steam needs to come out, doesn't it? And so I think shame is kind of like that image, is that as, as we're, the steam is just hitting its maximum capacity, in order for, for it to release some of its pressure, we got to just start shaming other people. That's one of the worst things, or that's one of the only things that shame does, is that we end up shaming other people. So when was the last time you shamed somebody? Did you shame somebody in your home? Maybe your spouse? Maybe a parent? A child? When was the last time you shamed somebody? You shamed somebody recently at customer service? That happens sometimes, especially during the holidays, right? It happens. But when was the last time you shamed somebody? Did you want to shame somebody like at a workout or a competition? You just want to destroy them and shame them. When was the last time you shamed somebody? Robert Karen gives the best definition of shame, and we got to just go to it again, all right? Here is his definition. He wrote this in the Atlantic uh, monthly back in February of 92. He says, shame is the pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed being, fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the human community. You ever feel unworthy? To be a part of community, that's shame talking. It is a self regarding the self with the withering and unforgiving eye of contempt. Shame tells me that I'm not enough. Shame actually convinces me that there actually is something wrong with me. Shame tells me that I am lesser than. And so as a result, we struggle with this feeling that we have all the time that we're a mistake. Right? Guilt tells me I made a mistake, but shame tells me I am a mistake. And when people experience shame, and when we all go through, we all feel that at some levels. When we go through that, we often get to a point where it's so big in our lives, or it's so powerful in our lives, that the only way to blow off some steam is actually shaming other people. And you don't just have to shame people with your mouth, with your words, or things like that. Some of you shame people with your minds. You cut them down in your mind. You shame them just by the things that you think about them, and that happens all the time. I don't know about you, but it does. And so really, you gotta read The Soul of Shame, written by Kurt Thompson. He's a doctor, 
And in this book, he spends an entire chapter breaking down the medical, sort of the, the biological understanding of the human brain. The human brain has two sides, the left side, the right side, right? And so the left side is where all the information is sort of retained. Uh, that's kind of what you use this morning to come here. A lot of you got in your cars and you drove to the church. Did you know you use the left side? That's your analytical, the informational side, where you, gain, where you have all your information. Now, what, what, uh, what Kurt Thompson says, the right side of your brain is actually where all the emotions live. It's where all your emotional faculties reside. And in order for a brain to be healthy, or, to, or we like to call it mentally healthy, uh, the left and the right side of the brain have to constantly be communicating with each other. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And if, if there is to be any health in life, there needs to be a good equilibrium, a good balance, right? He says in his research that there is no other emotion that literally breaks down the communication from the right brain from communicating with the left brain than the emotion of shame. Shame will destroy your brain's capacity to communicate with each other in a healthy way, therefore causing mental illness. And you know some of the symptoms of that, depression, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder. We can go on and on the list. A lot of times, many of us feel shame before we can actually even identify it. And really what we struggle with so much is that with shame and what shame often does in our lives is that it makes us feel like we're not capable of handling a certain moment or a circumstance. That maybe somebody might be saying something to us and we start to feel shamed by it. And so because we feel like we don't have the proper faculties to deal with that, what do we usually do? We shame them in the process. We find a way to flip and shame them in the process. And that's why this is such a deadly, deadly, deadly disease that destroys every area of our soul. Shame is literally from the pit of hell. And the only way we can deal with it, the only way that we can have victory over it is that we have to let Jesus Christ come and disarm our shame. That's what he's going to do today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture and Jesus disarms the shame of these Jewish leaders and he does it so masterfully. And you got to pay attention because if you do, he's going to help you and I to disarm our shame so that we no longer live under its tyranny and we get to embrace the true identity and how God formed us to be his child, to be his children. All right, that's what we're going for today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Please turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, because they probably had the most sin because they lived the longest, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, and here, just think about this woman. She thought, well, now I'm dead. He's going to stone me. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some of your translations said, go and sin no more. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so God, we come to you today and we ask that you would really help us to be very attentive. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would really be with our minds and even our hearts and our ears today, God. Um, all of us in this room and those even watching, 
uh, through a camera right now, um, we have struggled with shame so much. And it's really hurt and ruined our lives. And so God, I pray that you would just help us to be attentive and may we get into this word and help us, Lord, as, as Jesus teaches us how we can disarm our shame. God, I pray that it would become our passion in life, the thing that we would never sacrifice, the things that he teaches us today, that we would make this literally our primary obligation in our life so that shame will no longer have the power to determine an outcome in our life anymore. And so God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, may it truly, truly be pleasing unto you. It is in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, so at this point of Jesus' ministry, what you need to know is that these teachers of the law, the Pharisees or the the teachers of the law, they began to feel threatened by Jesus. Have you ever felt threatened before by somebody? I'm sure all of us have, haven't you? We've all felt threatened at some capacity, right? And so they're feeling threatened. These these Jewish leaders are feeling threatened by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was teaching with a depth of knowledge about God that they did not possess. They didn't have that. Just think about being like the main show in town. Everyone came to you for spiritual advice, spiritual guidance, and all of a sudden this new guy comes along and everyone is going to him. He's packing out synagogues. Nobody's coming to you anymore. Wouldn't you feel a little friend? I would. And then it just gets worse. Because not only does he know more than you, he's now doing supernatural miracles that everyone is talking about. Everywhere he goes, they're talking about, did you see what this guy did? He's healing the sick. The, The lame are walking. I mean, the blind are seeing. I mean, he's doing crazy supernatural miracles. And these Jewish leaders couldn't even do one collectively, cumulatively. And so they felt so threatened by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, he wasn't doing this indirectly. Because they weren't firm in who they were in God. Because they struggled with this Jesus was somehow indirectly reminding them of how much shame they have in their life. He was reminding them, or they were being reminded that they definitely are lesser than, that there's something wrong with them, that they're not enough. Jesus was reminding them every day that that was the case. And so as a result of it, can you just imagine going through that on a daily basis when you find your identity in your work and what you do for a living and then all of a sudden somebody, a hot shot comes along and takes all the glory away from you and now you're struggling with this because you found so much of your identity in being a spiritual leader and now that's being compromised, not because you lived your life a certain way, no, or you you made a mistake, no, it's because some hot shot comes along and now takes away everything that you've worked so hard to establish. And as a result, shame was telling them they no longer matter, that they're not enough, that they are losers. And so as a result, what begins to happen is that that shame gets to them in such a place where they, be, they, they caught a woman in adultery. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but what scholars basically say is that the husband found out about the affair, and in order for an, a, an accusation to stand in the Jewish courts, there needs to be two witnesses. And so, of course, they would summon uh, a Jewish leader, and so they summon them, they catch this woman uh, who committed adultery, and uh, just mind you what happens in this text, the guy who committed adultery with her is, no, is not even in the picture. Of course, he's gone, they don't even prosecute him. They take this woman who's probably naked and and in order for them to be caught having adultery, they actually caught them having sex. They were actually having sex and they were caught red-handed. They didn't give her time to put her clothes back on. She probably just had a little something to just cover herself. And she went 
completely being oblivious of how much shame they're causing this woman. It's hard enough what she has to go through now, but at least they could give her the dignity, at least put on some clothes and at least go clothe. But they don't, they take her. And that's what often happens. When you live in shame and you want to shame other people, you forget that in the process that you wanted to shame somebody else, you shame other people in the process. And that's what's happening is she is not a person. They don't see her as a human being. They just see her as a means to an end to accomplish what they want to accomplish, to sort of break down the credibility of Jesus Christ. And so they bring this woman to Jesus and they say, well, what, what should we do here? Because in Deuteronomy 22, 21, Ezekiel 16, it actually says that when somebody is caught in adultery, they must be stoned to death. So if somebody commits adultery, capital punishment. That's how severe the crime was of what she did. And so this was a perfect trap, a perfect trap for Jesus Christ. Simply because in 30 AD, the Roman government took away the power for the Sanhedrin Council, which is a Supreme Court in Jerusalem. They took away the power of this court to enforce capital punishment. So it was against the law now for them to kill somebody, even if they committed adultery, right? So it was the perfect trap. Because if Jesus says, stone her, what would happen? He'd be prosecuted and he would go to jail. Problem solved. They get rid of the shamer, right? The one that's shaming them or indirectly. Or if Jesus says, uh, let her go, then he loses his spiritual credibility because he is actually going against what it says in the Mosaic law. So this was an absolute perfect trap for Jesus Christ. And I love what he does to deal with the shame of these people. These people who constantly see him being threatened. Could you just imagine, like, if they were, if they were sure in who they were in God, they could have rejoiced with Jesus. They could say, you know what, I don't have any of that, but I'm so grateful that you're here because we're all part of the kingdom. We got to do this together, right? There's some things I can do, some, and some things you guys, you can do that's much better than me, but still, it's okay. They could celebrate with Jesus, but they couldn't do it. They just kept threatened by him. Have you felt threatened by somebody? Have you ever felt threatened by somebody? Have you ever felt threatened by somebody at work? Somebody who worked maybe around the same time as you, but yet they got a higher bonus or maybe they got a promotion before you and now they, you used to be friends with them, but now you just see them as a threat to you. Or maybe somebody new, your boss hires a new person and this person is like a hot shot in your company and you're just kind of like, what? Like he just, or she just started and like the boss is like in love with this person and you're just kind of like, what about me? What about me? You feel not, you can't even, you can't even be happy that this person is a part of your company. You can't even get to know this person because you hate them so much because of the threat that they're causing you. You ever feel like that? You ever feel threatened uh, by somebody who just recently joins your friendship circle? Like you didn't invite them to be a part of your friendship circle, but maybe somebody, one of your friends did, and now this person is in your friendship circle and uh, you feel threatened by them because they're better looking than you? They're more successful than you, right? They just seem to have a swag about them that you don't have. And the reason why you feel threatened is because in your friendship circle, there's a, a girl or a guy that you really like and you want them to like you, but now you get this new hotshot in the group and you don't know if it's gonna happen anymore. And that's, this woman or this guy actually is a threat to you now because it might compromise your mission in dating this person. Have you ever felt that kind of threat before? you have not, man, you have it so good. You have it so good. I'm just speaking about my life here, right? This is all about my life, right? Have you ever felt threatened by somebody in your family? Like all of a sudden this new person enters into your family, maybe marries one of your brother-in-law or sister-in-law, and then all of a sudden your father and mother-in-law loves this person better than you, 
right? This guy just joined the family, or this woman just joined the family, and they're buying their in-laws all these great gifts and all these things, and they're just totally being enamored by it, loving on them all the time. And you're thinking, what about me? I was here first. And you can't even be happy that you have a new sister or brother-in-law. They are the reminders that you're not enough, that there might be something wrong with you, that you are a mistake. And so as a result, you start to think about what can I do to shame them so I can feel better about myself. That's how the mind of people who struggle with shame works. We see people not as people created in the image of God. We see people as threats to us because we don't want anyone, anyone to come close to reminding us that we're lesser than, that there's something wrong with us. Jesus reminded these Jewish leaders that there was something wrong with them, that they just didn't have it anymore. And they struggled so much with it that they said, we have to do whatever we can to take this person out. And eventually they were successful, but now they were not. But what I love what Jesus does, Jesus catches all of this and he disarms their shame. And here's how Jesus will disarm our shame if you do exactly what he did to these Jewish leaders. The first way in how Jesus will disarm our shame is he does it by making us wait on him. If you want Jesus to ever disarm your shame, you have to wait on him. Look at what he says in verse two. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What was Jesus writing? What was he doing down there? You know, what was he, do- what was he doing? Well, some scholars say that he was actually writing down the list of all the sins of the Jewish leaders. Right? Some other scholars say that he was actually writing down his verdict, what the sentence should be for this woman. Right? Some scholars say that. And then some other scholars say that ah, he was just doodling. Just playing around. Maybe some of you are doodling right now in your bulletins. Is that little note section. Just doodling right now. We do that all the time, don't we? Just to kind of, you know, pass the time. That's not the important thing here. Because <laughs> if that was important, what Jesus was writing, the, the author would have let us know. That's not the important thing. The important thing is this. Jesus made them wait. They wanted an answer. And he gets down and he says, you're waiting. You wait for me. You see, if you ever want to get to a place where Jesus will begin to disarm your shame, the reason why shame is so rampant and so strong in our lives today, it's so powerful and it's got this tyrannical power over our lives, simply it's because we are in control of our life. And you cannot trust yourselves. I'm telling you that right now. That the moment you begin to trust yourself, you begin to live under the power of shame. And shame begins to control your life. And Jesus says, you have to wait on me. If you wait on me, you have a chance you have a chance to not allow shame to govern your life anymore. Jesus makes them wait. He disarms their shame. Why would Jesus want you and I to wait? Because if truth be told, a lot of us, we approach our spiritual life with Jesus with a posture where we want him to wait on us. Don't we? It's the truth. We want Jesus and God to wait on us. We don't want to wait on him. You know, waiting is very un-American. We do not want to wait for anything. We don't want to wait at a restaurant. When we call a waiter or the waitress and we tell them to do something, get us some water, and they keep forgetting, what happens to you? You get upset. 
You feel like there needs to be better service. Listen, you don't approach God in your relationship with God because you want good service from him. He's not a waiter. He's not one of your employees that you dispatch for your own purposes. That's not the spiritual life. And many of you, even though you won't ever say it with your lips, that's how you approach God. You want him to wait on you. God every day is inviting you to his presence. And a lot of us will say, well, I'm just too busy, God. I'll get to you when I'm ready. I get to you when I got some time. And so we want him to wait on us. And then we, we conjure up a few minutes. All right, God, I'm here. Let's go. Hurry up. Let's do this. Think about our posture. We'll never overcome our shame. Jesus can never disarm our shame now because he can't work in our lives if you want Jesus to wait on you. You have to posture your life in a way where you're willing to wait on him. Because when you wait on him, you no longer take control of your life and you're surrendering yourself to him and you're saying, Lord Jesus, I give you everything. I wait on you. That is the posture. Jesus makes them wait. The most spiritually vibrant people that I've I'm so grateful. Some of these people I'm actually really good friends with. Um, they're people who've mastered this art of waiting on God. They will never, ever fall away from this path of knowing that if they can't wait on God, there's no way they can overcome their shame. They can overcome life. And so this is not to be condemning. This is not, none of this. Hopefully it just empowers you. But will you wait on God? Will you allow yourself to just sit and wait on him and let him come to you when he's ready? Because maybe there's a lot of work he wants to do in you. Will you position yourself in a place where you wait on him rather than you wanting God to wait on you? That posture has everything to do with Jesus disarming your shame or not. Psalms 27, 14, it's not up there, but I'm gonna share it anyway. I read it this morning when I was just with God. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Uh, understand what the author is saying here is that when you and I can learn to wait for the Lord, we become strong. Amen. We can begin to take heart in these difficult circumstances in life as we wait upon him. Do you know the strength that you are going to receive when you can just wait on God? When you say, God, I am no longer in control of this life of mine, that I'm gonna surrender it all to you, that when you wait upon him in that posture, do you realize the strength that awaits you? That, could over, that, that will allow you to overcome certain things, especially to solidify your identity in being a child of God where nothing could ever destroy that. That's what happens when you can just wait upon him. The way you hear from God, the way you hear from God and, and allow God to speak to you is when you're willing to wait on him. See, when you, wait, when you want God to wait on you, you're, you just kind of sit there and say, God, just speak to me. Hurry up, speak to me. God doesn't speak like that. He doesn't speak at your command. He speaks when you wait upon him. Because it's this posture of surrendering yourself to the almighty Jesus. And when you do that, there's something beautiful and powerful that can happen in your life and in my life as we do it. And so how do you wait upon God? Everyone finds God differently. We can find what works for you that allows you to surrender yourself, your life, give your life over to God. Whatever works for you and then do it. But the best way in how it's done, our forefathers, the ancient practice that we see modeled in Jesus Christ is silence and solitude. That we have to embrace silence and solitude. If we don't live in silence and solitude, then it's going to be very hard. So I've been encouraging a lot of people that I've been meeting recently that if they can just spend five minutes of silence before they wake up, before they have to get on with their day, I just say, just set your alarm five minutes before, get up, 
just be silent. Just let your prayer be silence. And then five minutes before you have to go to sleep, just stay silent and then go to sleep. Just be silent. Learn to embrace silence in your life because when your soul can embrace silence as a good thing, because right now the majority of us, our soul does not embrace silence as a good thing. It is like, for some of us, we feel like it's demonic. We can't sit and be silent. When you go home today, if you drove by yourself, don't turn the radio on. Just be silent. Hopefully some of you came from far away. Be silent for an hour. Just let silence be your friend. When it becomes your friend, that's when you hear the voice of God. You got to quiet your soul, but you can't do that unless you're willing to wait on him. This has been the busiest season, one of the busiest seasons I can remember, uh, probably in the last eight or nine years. And I'm doing the church stuff here, leading the church, I'm continuing to be the lead pastor and preaching a couple times a month. Um, it's always something I have to do and I continue to do, and uh, joyfully, uh, I might add. And uh, <laughs> I'm not complaining here, uh, but, uh, but also uh, have to continue to just lead our staff the best we can. And, um, uh, um, have to continue to work for the building. And, and can I just thank all of you who came out Tuesday night to the city council meeting? You guys were amazing. We packed that place out. And um, Dennis Sanita do an amazing job. Man, she slayed them. She slayed those council people, didn't she? With her words, she just did amazing. Uh, that takes a lot of work. Got to meet with a lot of different people, a lot of different meetings. That's really taking up a lot of my schedule these days too. And um, uh, we have, I have a discipleship group that I'm leading, which really takes a lot of my time. Every Thursday nights, so we get together. And we, I do that. I got to prepare for lessons, meet people one-on-one. It's a lot. And not to mention, uh, I am, I'm doing a doctoral program. So I have to read a lot of different books and write a lot of different papers. And so it's just, it's like the perfect storm. I, I kid you not, it's, it's pretty busy. And I want to keep making myself available for my family. So then where's my time? And I'm an introvert. So if I don't have my time, I start to, I start to feel it. And so it's just, it's been really, it's been a, a challenge these days. And I realized that in November, I said to Jenny, I said, hey, I, I need to get away. If it's okay with you, can I just get away for just two nights, three days? I just got to go to a monastery and be quiet. That's it. No agenda, just to be quiet. And luckily, she gave me her blessing. So I booked uh, a monastery. I found a great one. If you ever want to go to a good monastery, just email me. I'll, I'll connect you with them. Uh, St. Abbey's in Morristown. And uh, it's, a, it's a Catholic monastery. Uh, I was hanging out with Benedict monks for a couple days. Really, those guys are really cool. And so we're just kind of hanging out, eating together and stuff. But the majority of my time was just to be in silence just to slow down and to wait on God. And I can't tell you, it was two days, two nights, three days of just God speaking and ministering to me that I really needed. And if I didn't get that, I was so afraid of going back eight years ago when I almost quit this church because I was so burnt out. And so wait on him. When you wait on him, he will disarm your shame because you envelop his presence in such a big way and you begin to be reminded again of who you are. The second way, in how, so this is progressive, okay? You can't do the second thing if you don't do the first thing first, all right? So the first thing is waiting on God, waiting on Jesus. He'll disarm your shame by doing that. But then the second, as you wait on him, here's the second thing you have to do. Take a deep look at your soul. Take a deep look at your soul. Verse seven, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus gets up and says, take a good look at your soul. If any one of you are without sin, be the first to cast a stone. When you wait upon God, one of the best things you can do is you can begin to ask and examine what's going on in your soul. Asking yourself, why do you feel some of the things that you feel? Why are you so angry all the time? Why do you feel so threatened? Why are you unwilling to forgive the people that have hurt you? Like, why? Like, not really asking that question, what's going on, and really unpacking it, because there's so much stuff underneath. There are layers that many of us are unwilling to go at, and you don't do this by yourself because you're never going to fully know. You know how you do it as you wait upon God? Invite the Holy Spirit to join you, and then he'll begin to give you deep revelations about yourself that you need to know, and it's a beautiful thing. And then if you can invite some people that are very spiritually mature into the conversation, it's even better. But you got to get to that place where you wait upon them and then examine what's going on in your soul. Because if you don't do that, you don't have a chance. God can't disarm your, 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 your shame because shame doesn't go away unless you know who you are. Unless you fully know that you're a child of God. Many of us, we might know it here, but we don't know it here. That, that 12 inches of separation is so key. A lot of you know that you're a child of God, but in here you believe you're still a children of a slave. You still believe you're slaves today, and you behave like one. You walk this life every single day like you, you deserve wrath all the time, or you don't really deserve blessings from God. That's what shame is doing. It's not God telling you this. It's shame, and it's messing you up, and you got to be silent. You got to get away and just wait upon him, and you got to invite the Holy Spirit to take a good look at your soul. You got to ask yourself, why am I like this? What's going on here? Why do I get so mad when this person says this about me? What's underneath that? The most important question you can ask about taking a look at your soul. What is underneath all of that? So I went to this monastery just because I was so overwhelmed and tired and wanted to connect with God. But God spoke to me in such powerful ways. But the one, sort of this one thing I wanted to invite Jesus to kind of examine with me in my soul is why am I so angry? Still, why am I still so angry? My mother and I got into a real big fight on Thanksgiving. And um, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I actually would, would have shared it with you, but when we reconciled, she looked at me and said, you better not share this with everyone in the church. <laughs> you promised me, and I had a pinky promise her. So I'm sorry, I can't share it with you. But it was bad. It's a day that you should have been thankful we had 25 people at our house. And, you know, Pastor IJ lives with me. Pastor Dan was there. And it was a public, public spectacle. But Dan was in a different room, so he didn't see it. <laughs> Thank the good Lord. But Pastor IJ did. There was rage beyond rage that I felt towards my mom. And um, if it wasn't for my wife, something bad could have happened. And I went to this monastery and I said, God, where, where, what, what is underneath all of this? Why do I struggle so much with this? And, and the great thing about going to monasteries, you can get together with one of these monks and just go sit down for spiritual direction. So I met Father Joseph and I said, can I meet with you? He said, sure. We sat down for two sessions. And I shared with him everything that went on and kind of like how angry I am and how I get so rageful sometimes. And, and he looks at me and he said, you know, and he says, it was just so basic, but it just, it, it meant the world to me. He said, Peter, God didn't make you angry. And I really thought he did. Not that he did, but 
My father was angry. My mom is always angry. So I was born with anger. It was just part of my life. It's just in my DNA. Like, you know, Jesus lives in my heart, but grandpa is in my bones, right? And so like I have my parents' DNA and so they really struggle with anger and rage, both of them. And so I just felt like this was just my disposition in life. And when he just said, Peter, God didn't make you angry. He made you compassionate, loving, understanding. I mean, it was just so important. Then he said, well, Peter, how much waiting do you do? How much do you spend time in silence and solitude every day? I said, I do about 15 to 20 minutes every day. He said, you need to up it to 30. And then, he, and then he said this, and this was the best piece of advice he gave to me. He goes, don't pray with words anymore. Just stay silent completely. And then when you end the 30 minutes, open up to Psalm and just read one chapter and let that be your prayer for the day. Guys, the wealth of God's presence that I've been encountering. I went away to this monastery last week has just been overwhelming. It's been overflowing. And I'm so grateful for that. And, 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 as, and you know, I had a lot more than 30 minutes a day when I was at this monastery to process. So I invited the Holy Spirit to just, as I was just pondering upon this about hours upon hours, here's what I learned about myself and what the Holy Spirit showed me. There were two things in my life that sort of triggers my anger, my easy, my quick trigger points. The first thing is my need to perform. I have an incredible need to want to perform. Now, I've been mature enough, I think, I believe this with my heart, so if I'm wrong, God forgive me, but I think I could separate my, my performance here at church because there are times where I've walked down here and I'm like, man, I bombed. But, I'm like, I, but I said, God, I did my best. That's okay. I'm okay with this now. I think I've matured enough to deal with sometimes if I bombed or if I felt like I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't a blessing. But the areas that like, I really struggle with like anger is like, in performance is perhaps uh, like if I'm late to a meeting, I don't like being late to a meeting. And if my wife makes me late to a meeting, I get very angry at her. I do. Things that I know I can control, but sometimes I, f I fail at it, makes me really angry. This I can't, because this is up to the Holy Spirit at the end of the day. And so that's a trigger point, but the rage, the rage. And I don't really act out in rage, but when I feel it, it depresses me for weeks. That's the problem with it. And um, the rage is deeply linked to my deep desire to want self-respect from everyone. I mean, to want respect from everyone. And when I feel somebody is disrespecting me, I turn into the Incredible Hulk. Now, you may not be able to see it because I can kind of hide it, but inside, I'm a green monster. And the fact that that happens overwhelms me. And so the rest of my time at the monastery, I just prayed with these two, I gave these two trigger points to the Lord. And I said, please help me. You see, when you can take a deep look at your soul and invite the Holy Spirit in, God does some really deep things in your life. So wait on him. Ask what's going on in your soul. What is underneath some of these things that's causing you to struggle, the things that are at the root of shame? Because when you can begin to do that, then Jesus will begin to disarm your shame. And you won't have to react in those ways that often hurts the people you love the most. Third and last thing, all right, again, this is the, the, the first is waiting. And as you wait, take a good look at your soul. And once you do that, then you can live in his forgiveness and obedience. 
When you live in Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus, one of the greatest things he wants you to do today is live in his forgiveness. But for a lot of us, we can't do that. We struggle with living in the forgiveness of Jesus. It's a struggle for us. And that's why we can't obey. Look what he does here to the woman. First time. Could you imagine if these Jewish leaders just stuck around? Because Jesus never told them to leave. If they just stuck around, they could have witnessed this. Because the only one who was, who was able to stone this woman was Jesus. He should have went for it, right? He gets up. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I'm going to say that last. If you have a highlighter and you actually bought a Bible, verse 11, please underline. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go now and leave your life of sin. Our Christian life is so much summed up in how we feel like we need to be condemned. A lot of you, self-condemnation is one of the worst things that shame has sort of, sort of uh, sprouted a, 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 a rotten fruit in your life. And you condemn yourself all the time for some of the things that you do. And what you need to know today that Jesus is saying to you, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. A lot of times, the reason why we're struggling so much in sin is because we keep believing in some way that we need condemnation. And we hurt ourselves by believing in that warped theology. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where they taught that. Or maybe you grew up in a home where whenever you did something wrong, there was condemnation. The greatest thing about Christianity is that there is no more condemnation. No matter what you do, there is no condemnation if you can go to God, wait on him, check out what's going on in your soul, and receive his forgiveness for your life. There is no condemnation. Look at what it says in Romans 8, 33 to 34, just in case, if you need a reminder today, for some of you that keep hurting yourself, because Shane keeps saying you need something bad to happen to you. You walk this life believing that God does not want you to have anything good. You walk this life believing that God doesn't even love you, which is ludicrous. Paul says it's pretty crazy. Look what he says in verse uh, 33. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, not you, not by what you do. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also what? Interceding for us. There is no more condemnation. You see, the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they were condemning themselves every day because Jesus was a reminder of how inadequate they were. And so they condemned themselves all the time. And if they could have just stuck around and saw what Jesus did, when he said, neither do I condemn you, perhaps they could have began to quench and drink a little bit of his mercy and grace. Because Jesus died for you on the cross, resurrected from the dead, if you struggle with the fact that you don't believe God loves you, my friends, that is not God telling you that. That is the devil telling you that. And shame is the major cause of that reality. God loves you. In fact, he loves you so much. He died for you, rose from the dead. And in fact, not only that, it doesn't just stop there. Heck, Jesus is interceding for you right now. So stop it. Stop condemning yourself. Live into this forgiveness. And how you live into it fully is as you learn to obey. How do, we, how do we live into the forgiveness of Jesus? You gotta be vulnerable. We talked about vulnerability. This woman is literally half naked. There is nothing that she has left to hide. The truth of her life, unfortunately, 
has been forced out of her. And she's completely vulnerable. She has no more secrets. It's been completely exposed. And as a result, she lives, she receives the mercy of God. But look at what Jesus says at the end. He says, go and sin no more. See, that's key. That's the key component. Your vulnerability should allow you to encounter the grace of God's mercy upon your life that gives you the greater desire to say, you know what, I don't want to go and sin anymore. I don't, it does, it's not as attractive. Now you will fall, we will always fall in sin, but get back up. Stop condemning yourself. Get back up and keep going, keep going, and try harder, and try harder. No one in this room, I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you, no one in this room will ever get to a point in their lives where they no longer sin. I don't care how good you are, you will always sin, so get over that. But get up and try harder. Because there's so much more to your life than your sinfulness. And the sad reality is that shame has made you to believe that there's nothing more to your life than all the dirty junk and brokenness that represents your life. No, there is so much more to you than just that. You were brought with a price. God loves you. Here's the powerful thing about this. Some of you are very vulnerable, but you keep sinning. That's dangerous. Your vulnerability should lead you to a place where you actually experience God's grace and his mercy and you begin to feel humbled to the point where you want to take action where you don't sin anymore. You gotta be careful. You know, we live in a, our church is a, is a very vulnerable church. And if your vulnerability continues to, like in some ways you use that vulnerability to kind of make yourself feel good so you just keep sinning, man, you have found a loophole to make vulnerability evil. And <laughs> some of you, and this is, this is me. Sometimes you guys, when we're vulnerable, we lie while we're being vulnerable. Isn't that crazy? We lie when we are being vulnerable. And that's probably the deepest, darkest evil that we can participate in. Hey, um, how do you know you're struggling shame? What is the barometer? Sometimes we need to create a metric system to this. So it's easier because some of you are so linear in how you think, you're not abstract. Here is it. If you lie and you have a struggle with lying all the time, you're living in deep shame. Why? Because you feel like you're lesser than, and as a result of feeling lesser than, you feel like a mistake. You have to lie so that people don't see who you really are. Jesus sees who you really are, and you know what he says? I don't condemn you. So why is it that we have to lie to other people? There's, that's something deep, dark. I, I never thought lying was such a bad thing, especially white lies. I just never thought lying was such a bad thing, but it is one of the most toxic things that, sh that will continue to be fuel for our shame to grow. And so could I ask you one of the things to do this week? What have you lied about to somebody that you dearly love that you need to tell the truth to today? What lie is that? Because if you don't, you're gonna to continue to live in constant, constant shame. Now, if that piece of information, if it's gonna compromise a relationship in some deep, dark way, and you're afraid of that, then can you just share that lie to somebody so that you can begin to live in his truth, all right? So that you can begin to live in his truth. I, I didn't know how bad lying was. I really didn't. Um, until I read this book. Well, actually, until I started attending this guy's class who wrote the book. And um, I, uh, I grew up in an abusive home, 
And uh, whenever my father would hit me, um, he didn't hit me a lot, but when he did, when he was drunk, he would always say this word stupid to me before he hit me. Stupid, boom, right? Uh, my mom got the lion's share of the abuse, and every time he hit her, he would always say stupid. And it's been such ingrained in part of my identity that it's really ruined me in many ways. It really has. And for my mother, I, I always have a heart for her because my mom never went to school. She, went, she was alive during the Korean War time. There were no schools. There, there was no stability in that country where she could have gone. She, she didn't have the money to go to school, so her grandparents never sent her to school. So she lives with that deep shame, and she really believes in this because my father only reinforced it through his abuse, and she believes she's not smart, uh, that she's stupid. I believe it to the core of who I am. And, um, and I struggled with that. I really, my whole life I struggled. So, you know, like, I told you guys, you know, a couple times up here that, you know, my, I got a 2.7 on my GPA in my high school. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not proud of that. I'm not. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's embarrassing. But I think I shared with you that I, I got a 2.7 because um, I didn't study. I didn't. I didn't study. I wanted to be popular by playing sports because, you know, my school was just, that's how you became popular. I didn't want to get made fun of anymore, so I focused on that. But there was a deeper reason why I didn't study. Because I was so afraid that if I did and I didn't do well, it would prove that I am stupid. That's why I didn't study. That's why I couldn't study. Because a couple times I did, and I failed. And I just said, I got to get away from this. So I'm just going to say, hey, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to focus on it. I'm just going to focus on sports. And it's an easy excuse. Like, I got that GPA because I didn't apply myself. So that's one thing, right? But SATs are a little different. Uh, you know, we didn't have SAT. Like, now they got all these SAT schools. Well, back in my day, there were no SAT schools. Maybe there were, but I, I didn't know about it. So, you know, we, you just have to study and then take the test. But even the stuff you study doesn't mean, like, it's going to be on the test. So I, I tried to look at it, but you know, I didn't understand it. My, my reading comprehension was so low, I just couldn't get what they were trying to teach. And so in any event, I just decided not to. And uh, I got a real, real bad score. And um, my friends did really well, really well. I had a friend who got like a 1450. I was like, man, I was blown away by that. Another friend got like a 1250 or something like that. I got a bad score. When I went to college, uh, my wife and I, we started dating, and, and we just started talking about SATs, and I said, hey, um, yeah, yeah what, what'd you get on your SATs? And uh, she, she looked at me, she goes, ah, I didn't do well, I don't want to tell you, it's embarrassing. I said, oh, okay. And then she said, hey, hey uh, what'd you get? <laughs> and this is what I said. I said, yeah, um, I got a 1050. Now, some of you are like, wow, that's really low. Guys, that's my lying score, all right? <laughs> That's not my real score. My real score is worse. My lying score, I lied about a 1050, all right? That's pretty bad, pretty bad. But I wanted to be a smart liar. I didn't want to, like, you know, like, if, you, like if, I, if I was a dumb liar, I would say, yeah, I got a 1450. Who's going to believe that? No one's going to believe that lie. That is a complete lie. I'm, I'm a smarter liar than that. So I had to make it a little bit realistic so that she would believe it. She said, oh, okay, all right. And that was it. Christina took the SATs about a year ago. She's getting ready for college. And she said, hey, Dad, uh, in front of Kayla and Christian, hey, uh, what'd you get on your SATs? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Dad didn't study at all. I got a, a 1050. It's like, oh, okay. Didn't think anything of it. Nothing of it. And as you're in these times of just letting God speak to you, and unfortunately, as I started reading this book and taking this guy's class, 
he started to, the Holy Spirit started convicting me of why do I have to lie? What's underneath that lie? And what's underneath that lie is that I feel stupid. Because the score that I really got, I don't remember the exact score, but it was like 850. You get a 400 by writing your name. That means I got a 450. Really. Pitiful, isn't it? And I had to lie. And so while I was fasting in August and September, you guys know all about that, God started convicting me. He said, you need to tell your wife, you need to tell your kids. Now, some of you don't think that's a big deal, but it really is. When you really think you're stupid, it's a big deal. I didn't want to do it. I was scared. And so I took my wife out to dinner on a date, and I said to her, I said, hey, honey, I, I, I need to tell you something. Uh, I've been lying to you. And she looked at me like I, I did something real terrible. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not that, but it's, I think it's just as bad. I said, remember when we were in college and I told you I got a 1050 on my SATs? <laughs> she said, yeah. I said, I lied. I got an 850. And then she kind of laughed and she goes, why? why? Why would you lie about that? And I said, because I didn't want you to think I was stupid. And she looked at me and she said, why do you think I would think you're stupid? Then I had to get down, get together with my kids, call them into the room, all three of them. <laughs> all right, kids, get in here. And specifically to Christina, I had to apologize because she asked me the question. I said, honey, I need you to forgive me because you asked me a question last year, what I got on my SATs, and I told you it was a 1050, but I didn't get a 1050. Dad got an 850. And she started laughing and everything, and then she said, you know, and a Christian not really being that sensitive, he goes, ooh, that's bad. <laughs> I said, yeah, let me see you take the SAT. Let's see what you get, buddy, right? See what you get. <laughs> but Christina, older, and she's very, she's so compassionate. She said to me, she said, Dad, why, why would you lie? I said, because I didn't want you to think I was stupid. She said, why would I think you're stupid? I waited on God after that. I just kept waiting and going deeper and deeper and deeper, asking what's underneath all of this stuff? Why do I feel so stupid? And you know what God started doing? He started saying, Peter, if you were stupid, how could you pastor a large multi-ethnic church? How? You couldn't do it if you were, if you were stupid. He said, Peter, if you were stupid, how could you have graduated with a master's degree acing seminary? Peter, if you were stupid, how could you go and do a doctorate's degree? You're not stupid. And I've been trying to live in that place because it's recent. If I forget something, I, I don't want to keep having the self-talk saying, you're so stupid, Peter. Sometimes I lock myself out of the office three times a day. I leave the key in the drawer. I usually would say, you're so stupid. I try to say, you know what? It happens. It happens. And I live in his forgiveness. And I try to sin no more against myself. What lie have you been telling? That gives shame the power to tell you 
or to make you to believe that that lie is who you really are. It's not who you are. And if you keep telling that lie or making people believe in those lies, then you're never going to know that you're created in the image of God, that you're his child. And then he wants to set you free so that you stop shaming other people because you cannot stop living in shame. Wait on him. Ask what's going on in your soul. Live in his forgiveness and learn to obey. Let's pray. Can I ask you to look at a lie that you've been telling or maybe you've told in the past and you've never exposed the truth? Let the Holy Spirit kind of comment. And this is not about condemnation because if you start to sense condemnation, then that's not the Holy Spirit speaking. That's probably the devil. So go to him. Bring that lie before him. Leave it at the altar today and say, I'm not going to live in lies anymore. I'm going to live in the truth. So I'm going to give you a few moments to do that. And then I'm going to pray. But more than pray, I'm going to read a passage of scripture this morning during my time, when I ended my time of silence, that literally brought me to my knees. So just go to him. And then I'll close this in prayer. Psalms 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army beseech me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. God, help us to get to a place in our lives where all we seek in life is to seek you that we just long to desire to dwell in your house every day so that even though people come up against us, even though we feel like we're losing the war, we can be confident because we know that you're on our side. There is no condemnation. We can look shame right in the eye and say, die, go to where Jesus sends you. God, I pray for our church. I pray for every person in this place. You will show them the amazing need that they have in their souls for your presence in their life. So God, teach them to make a key priority so that they can learn to wait on you. They would never walk this life wanting you to wait on them. Help them to wait on you. And God, as they do that, would you help them to search their soul, what's going on, and asking the question, what's underneath all of that? And God, would you reveal yourself to them in such a deep way so they can live in your forgiveness and stop living a life of shame. So God, I pray a special consecration upon our church.
a special impartation of your spirit to be poured out into our church so that, God, we can wait on you and never make you wait on us. Thank you for disarming our shame. Thank you that our shame does not determine who we are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Spirit's moving. I know he is. And so we're going to continue to worship God in spirit and in truth. But before we do that, there's some next steps that I really want you to take today. Can you just flip over your communication card? First, I'm committing my life to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never done that, you really need to take that step. Otherwise, you're going to keep living in your shame. Just check that off. If you've never said yes to Jesus, check it off. I want to encourage you to go out to the new, Newcomers Quick Stop directly after the service and uh, go to the next table. There's a new believers packet. A, a leader could help you and walk you through the steps of opening your heart to Jesus. Or you can come up for prayer today in the front or in the back and you can you know, uh, welcome Jesus into your heart that way. All right, so just check that off. Second, I'm going to ask for forgiveness to someone that I've sinned against in terms of I've shamed. Maybe you've shamed somebody recently. Do the right thing and go up and say, listen, forgive me. The second part to that next step is this. Tell the truth to somebody you lied to this week. Just tell the truth. And let the Holy Spirit pour out his grace upon your life. All right? It's the season of Advent. Uh, we're not going to reach our goal if you don't give. So I will prayerfully consider giving to the Christmas offering. Would you think about that? There's some information. You can grab the Christmas card on the info table. Grab it if you're new here. Kind of see where the money's going. None of it's coming to our church. It's all going out to be a blessing upon the world. So please give generously. Think about that. If you didn't bring anything with you today, next week's Christmas Sunday, think about bringing your Christmas offering then. Fourth, I will invite someone at Metro to Metro's Christmas service next Sunday. Next Sunday is at Christmas service. Would you please think about inviting somebody because they may come. Easter and Christmas are the two holidays where if you invite five people to come, three will say yes. That's the statistics. So you have an opportunity to change somebody's life next week, potentially. And next week, I'm going to be talking about the shame of our family. It doesn't get easier, folks. It really doesn't. All right? So make sure you invite somebody uh, to that. Last, Connections Dinner. It's kind of like to help you learn a little bit more about Metro Community Church. Maybe just kind of learning more about this church. You want to learn more about it? I'm going to invite you to come to my house on the January 19th at 4 p.m. Love to invite you. I'd love to connect with you and, and share a little bit about our church with you. So if you're interested, uh, please sign up for that, and we would thank you for that ahead of time. Uh, also, I just want you to know that today we're selling these books right outside. Um, this book will wreck your life, but a wreck in a good way. Um, pick it up before you leave. F best $15 you spend this year, I guarantee you, if you haven't brought the book, and make sure you read it. Uh, we have uh, probably like 20, 25 copies left. I'm sorry, if, if we run out, just get it on Amazon, okay? It'll be the same price, 15 bucks. 